Hey, it's Jed Hearn, host of Wizards, Warriors, and Words. If you're enjoying the writing advice on this show, you might like my new podcast, The Jed Hearn Show, where every week I share the best fantasy writing advice that I've learned from publishing three fantasy novels and a best-selling video game. There's over 12 episodes that you can listen to right away, including my top 10 fantasy books of all time, how to make fantasy names that don't suck, two rules that make writing effortless, and my complete summaries of Brandon Sanderson's and Neil Gaiman's writing classes, and much more. Check it out by searching for The Jed Hearn Show in your podcast app. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Wizards, Warriors and Words, a fantasy writing advice podcast. I'm Jed Hearn, author of Across the Broken Stars. I'm Dirk Ashton, author of the Paternus Trilogy. I'm Mike Fletcher, author of Beyond Redemption and some other stuff. I'm Rob Hayes, author of uh, the War Eternal Trilogy and Never Die and many other books. <laughs> and today we are joined by our extremely special guest, Adrian Tchaikovsky. Adrian, do you want to introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, yeah. Um, I, I'm Adrian Tchaikovsky. I've written quite a lot of stuff, fantasy and science fiction. I'm certainly best known for Children of Time, which is basically giant spiders in outer space. And my most recent book is a sort of parallel world speculative evolution book, Doors of Eden. Fantastic. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, Adrian. I think we've been wanting to do this for a long time, ever since I forget who it was that initially mentioned Children of Time as one of our featured books in an earlier episode. But yeah, from there, I read it. It was amazing. Oh, there we go. Michael Fletcher is holding up a copy of Children of Time right there. Um, and today's episode, we'll be talking all about something that is very key to Children of Time, which is creatures and animals in fantasy and science fiction. So to kind of kick things off, Adrian, I was wondering if you could sort of maybe talk a little bit about what aspect that animals add to fantasy and science fiction stories that maybe can't be achieved by human characters? What different dimensions or elements do they contribute to a narrative? Um, I, weirdly enough, I think that having non-human characters and, and specifically animals because of the weight of symbology they tend to bring, um, what they bring to a narrative is very much what fantasy and science fiction bring to literature in that they give you different ways of sort of separating out um, strands of, of symbol and character and um, things you want to examine in a very explicit way rather than having them all tangled up in say 
if you want to write a story about greed, you can write a story about a, a person who is greedy, or you can you can also write a story about um, your kind of traditional Western dragon, say. And it, for my money, I mean, the dragon makes for the more interesting story, but it also means you, you can explore the theme more explicitly without getting lost in other aspects. And in that way, animal characters, um, companions, um, sort of, helpers guides that have yeah that have turned up through um stories going back to basically the dawn of human storytelling they allow you to separate out those um threads of human nature um and and play with them in a way that you can't if you're just talking about humans that's a really good observation no that does and that's not where i was expecting it to go at all but i really like that i think there's definitely something to be said about in the same way that that fantasy books kind of remove you from the world such so that you can reflect back on the world with a fresh perspective, you know, kind of creatures and everything sort of do that because you can distance yourself from what they're really saying about the human condition by virtue of the fact that they're not human. So you're like, huh, look at these creatures being greedy and selfish or whatever. And then you realize, hang on a second. That's me. Like that's the same behavior that I'm doing. <laughs> I mean, I should say also that's not necessarily the reason that i do it i mean this is i i i have i got i mean when i was doing um back from the beginning when i was doing shadow of the act and especially moving on to children in time people would all, often ask well why do you write books about spiders and insects and things like that and i had a very complicated answer that made me sound terribly sophisticated and clever about <laughs> the long-standing tradition of using insects as a mirror to human nature so you've got um, Kafka's metamorphosis you've got Pelican's life of insects you've got um, the insect play by Chapek and they're all using they they're using different types of um of effectively reviled creature um mm. to examine examine people and that made it sound all terribly literary and the real answer is really just that i like especially insects and spiders and octopuses and all the things that most people don't like but beyond that just the natural world is because i grew up basically on a diet of david attenborough's documentaries a uh, an integral part of my mindset i can't really imagine a world where that isn't a major player um, and so it basically comes down to I do it because I like it, but at the same time, because it is such a big uh, literary device and because it's so versatile, it then becomes a very useful tool as a secondary sort of adjunct to that. I have a, I have a quick question for you there, actually. Is it got something to, with, with Children of Time, which is obviously about spiders, mm -hmm. uh, and then Children of Ruin, which is about octopuses, is there something to do with like eight as well? Is there some sort of hidden, <laughs> hidden thing within those two books about the number eight that, that I well, missed? I mean, cl clearly it's four limbs good, eight limbs better. But <laughs> um, I mean, that's, that's, that is both evolutionarily and um, on a literary front entirely coincidental. Um, and in fact, the, um, the new element I'm, I'm bringing in, as, um, which is kind of hinted at at the end of Children of Room, but isn't really a spoiler, um, is I'm looking at bird intelligence um, as a one thing That's I'm doing awesome. with the next book. And unless I want to add extra wings onto them, that'll only be sort of four limbs and a beak. <laughs> I'm so glad you're doing that because as I was like walking, um, there's like a whole bunch of birds sort of through a park that I walk through quite regularly. And I think reading Children of Time just made me like hyper aware of how 
like different animals could potentially take over like the world and everything like that. <laughs> you know, I'd be walking around seeing a spider and thinking, gee, I'm glad that I'm like a thousand times bigger than that thing because that would destroy me if it was uh, my size. I don't think and then, you're going to worry about the spiders. It's the squirrels you want to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the one. That'll be the fourth book, Children of Squirrels. Um, but yeah, no, it just that's, that's interesting that you mentioned that sort of avian intelligences because I was like, I can see spiders. That makes sense. They've got like lots of limbs octopus as well like you know they already have this intelligent base birds i I can't see birds sort of taking over a planet but i'll be very interested to see how it goes i mean i'm working with um with corvids um which are kind of along with parrots of the intelligent birds obviously although that's that's a difficult metric to really measure um and frankly they they are there they are as there as the octopus octopuses are because they have that um, problem solving tool using sort of curiosity about the world um that that certainly feels to a human to be an integral aspect of um, of intelligence that's awesome i'm very excited to see how that plays out sweet so how do do opening this up to our other hosts here um what do you kind of look for when you are building different fantasy or science fiction animals into your, into your worlds? Um, Rob, do you, do you want to maybe kick off? Um, I mean, to be honest, I've, including animals is, is never something that I've really done with, with my books, which is odd because I, I did a degree in zoology. Um, oh. So, you know, I sort of like, I studied animal behavior in, in, in university. And I, I occasionally add like a little one, like I mean, in my pirate series, I have a, I have a giant spider. I think, oh no, no, that was in the previous one. In the, in the pirate series, it's actually a giant um, centipede. <laughs> awesome. It's, it's in the previous series to that, there's a giant spider, uh, which is like a cat-sized thing which sits on a person's shoulder. Um, but that tends to be the only sort of way that I really use them myself as having them as sort of, not quite pets, but sort of, you know, companions um, in individual sort of uh, in, in circumstances, in, in instances. So, you know, one spider or one uh, centipede in that sort of sense. Um, I don't know why I've never really sort of written a book with uh, animals as a larger theme, to be honest. Might have to get around and doing that at some point. But but your zoology degree, um, that explains why you can why you know uh michael michael fletcher so well (laughs) (laughs) he's definitely an animal animal. (laughs) we all are was there a little animal psychology to that too (laughs) mike what about you have you um have you had many animal sort of characters or or presences Uh, in your books and we've we've talked about this before i tend to sort of um you know, the, the humans are my monsters and my creatures. Um, so I, I tend to approach it more from a, you know, humans becoming animals like shapeshifter kind of thing or, or um, you know, aspects of their personality sort of shape what they become kind of stuff like the Manifest Delusions books. Uh, but I've never really tackled, you know, writing, uh, you know, animal characters, you know, uh, and I love the idea of, uh, I think that's part of what, really caught me with children of time was you know reading it and getting sucked into spider psychology and and how just everything 
all the pieces fit together and it made so much sense. Uh, I, I mean, that was like a, a huge hook for me. Um, writing like that seems like a ton of effort. And like, I'd have to actually like learn stuff about things. It seems <laughs> really difficult. So I, 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 haven't, I haven't done that um, at all. How about, uh, how about Dirk? You got any animal, uh, you must have animal gods. You've got tons of uh, Yeah, I mean, um, as far as like animal characters, I have one, but like Adrian, I grew up watching those nature shows. Um, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom was one of my absolute favorites. I'm a little older than all you guys. You may not, you may not uh, actually remember that one at all, but um, I, I just love that stuff. And um, I mean, the basis, the basis I came up with for the mythology, for kind of explaining the mythologies and all the gods and, and demons and monsters in the world were based on a lot of myths mythologies, um, origin myths, creation myths uh, that from all over the world that talk about a being coming down and literally basically mating with an animal. Um, bears, dogs, cats, coyotes, um, um, all lions, you know, uh, all kinds of things and basically creating human the human eventually they became the human race um so i um i got to have a lot of fun with that because i got to use i mean i decided to go ahead if that's the case and I, this is going to be my conceit to base this kind of um this uh like complete theory of the mythologies and and, and these characters from around the world um, was I got to basically, I, I expanded it out and I go to, you know, uh, baboon, there's a, there's, there's one, so there's this one being who can literally take the shape of any animal and mate with them. And his children are these demons and gods from all over the world, known by many names all across different cultures. And um, they, so I got to use, you know, baboons and I went back and used dinosaurs and pterodactyls. And, you know, so there are these, these creatures that are kind of part human in their true face. They're part human, but also part, um, to different extents, more or less, part what their mother was. So um, I, I built in like I built in characteristics of those animals into their not just their appearance, but their strengths, weaknesses, and behaviors, and even personalities. Um, plus, mm -hmm. they can adopt any personality they want. I mean, like I have a chicken god basically a, a rooster and he acts like a rooster he's like cocky and he fights and you know uh boxes and, and um but he's adopted a the scottish culture as his thing so he's adopted like a scottish name and a scottish accent and 
and uh, uh, that that was a lot of fun. The only the, the the closest to a true animal character I have is Molossus, who's one of the characters' dogs. Um, though he really doesn't belong to anyone because he's thousands of years old. He's the original Molossus, um, the Hound of War, um, and became the Hound of War of the Greeks. And um, he, uh, he uh, is like the father of, uh, say, Argus, you know, the dog in um, the Iliad and the Odyssey and and all these things. And he doesn't actually speak, but when he barks and makes weird noises, certain characters can, you know, act like they know exactly what he's saying, whereas other characters are like, have no idea. So um, that was a lot of fun. But again, it comes from, it comes from my love of animals, all kinds as a kid. I was just a freak for finding every little weird bug and lizard and, you know, playing with it and studying it and and uh it's um it was really kind of a kind of a dream come true really to to write those to write those books and put all those animalish characters in there well, well if i can say i think um shape changes are absolutely um sort of within the um within the category because obviously as soon as you give an, an animal any kind of anthropomorphic features even just the fact that it can talk or it has a a more human sentence you're putting it on that continuum that mm -hmm. goes from sort of from beast beast to 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 humanity and so you know a shape changer is kind of bang in the middle of that line really i mean i, I my yeah, own I, um uh, tiger in the wolf series is all about um just a world where that kind of shape changing is is a universal because that's what i tend to do with my my fantastic elements when i'm ex when i'm exploring sort of um building the world we're going to yeah, pause I, um, for a second for our featured book of the week, and then we'll get right back into this discussion. Um, Adrian, would you like to take us away with uh, talking about the featured book of this week, which can be any one of your books, if you want? Oh, God. Well, sorry, I thought you were... I, um, okay, well... Uh, Put you on the spot there, sorry. <laughs> you have it, but I just think I should probably have a... Give me a second. I'll go and grab a, a copy. Yep, no worries. We can do Usually one of us has a copy to hold up. Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> uh, there we go. We, we've got yeah, two of the old ones. You got the other one. You got your one. Yeah, um, so, Alrighty. yes, this is my, uh, my most recent book out. It's in the UK and the US at the moment, The Doors of Eden. Uh, so, this is a book about that starts off with a couple of uh, girls going hunting, hunting cryptids in a place called Bodmin Moor in the UK. And they hunt cryptids sufficiently successfully that only one of them comes back. <laughs> Years later, the, uh, the missing <laughs> took me a while to work that out. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> that was a good line. Years later, the, the the missing girl mysteriously reappears from who knows where um, as part of a sequence of events that spiral through kind of national security, all sorts of spy and espionage stuff into things getting into our world from beyond parallel universes where evolution has taken different courses um i mean if you want the squirrels i've got i've got at least rodents <laughs> um i've got uh sort of giant bellum knights i've got immortal space going trilobites 
um, giant cats, all manner of stuff. I go completely mad basically <laughs> on the um, <laughs> on the evolutionary front because I've got given myself plenty of different worlds to run the run the uh, thought experiment in, and ending up with possibly the nature of the universe itself. Oh, I'm very excited. Wow, so you sort of reined yourself in with children of time and children of room. Like, well, we'll just have spiders in this one, and then in this one we'll have octopus, and then you just like pick yeah, everything. this is the this is the one I take the brakes off for. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that has got That's me very a- excited. That is, uh, can you hold that up again, just so we can remind yeah. people of what that is? That is the Doors of Eden by Adrian Tchaikovsky. I'll have the link to that in the show notes as well. You can check that out, and. Um, Mike, you picked up on something earlier, which I'd love to get your thoughts on, Adrian, where, Mike, you were saying how the spider psychology within Children of Time and also the, the octopi psychology in um, Children of Ruin, it just makes sense. Like, I don't know a lot about kind of animal psychology or anything, but you read it and it just feels so logical. It feels like the way their society evolves and how they interact with each other is just exactly how it would make sense for them to do that. So I'm curious, how do you kind of figure out what is the, the logical way for different species to evolve within your stories? And how do you figure out how their society would be unique to them, I suppose? Um, I mean, I, I think my, my, my sort of whole card here is really just the way my mind works when I'm planning anything in that I, I have a very organic approach. I can take a any kind of starting point and i'm very good at plotting the way the ripples move out from that into what what does this mean and then what what are those the implications of that and then beyond that and until eventually you've got the world i mean the starting point with all with with both of those is really effectively the research um so children of time the spark for children of time came about when i was reading I'm hoping to God I've got the name right. Uh, Dr. Fiona Cross's research with the the Porsche spiders. So all of the um, I think this this has actually been on an Attenborough documentary since. But all of the very early stuff with the Porsche spiders, when you're seeing them as just spiders in their natural state, that's all pretty much blow for blow based on what um, the research has shown about their cognitive capabilities, which are frankly vastly in excess of anything any that something with so few neurons should be able to muster it does quite challenge the idea of what what do you need to have complex behavior and problem solving capabilities and we, yeah we, we're talking we're talking about minute spiders that demonstratively have concepts like object permanence and things like that mm. um and then with the um um, there's a book called Other Mind, which I, I, I credit at the beginning of uh, Children of Ruin, which was my major source for the octopus um, cognition, and which, interestingly, I was actually put onto by one of your previous guests, RJ Barker, uh, uh, which I'm immensely well. grateful because it's an enormously useful and very um, digestible source of information. But once I've digested that, my mind does tend to kind of just work through the logical implications of where that might go if you gave it a bit of a nudge mm-hmm. um the spiders were a lot easier than the, oct- the octopuses despite the fact they're in the native state they're arguably con- considerably further from us in terms of cognitive capability mm. because what we know of them at least 
is more easily narratively comprehensible when you've got um, with the oct with the octopuses because of the way their cognition is divided and the the fact that you they are the, the way that the arms work is not being directly controlled by the brain in the same way that we would control our bodies because the brain you you basically couldn't get a brain a brain large enough to work out where all the arms were at any one time things like that um is was a almost almost broke my head to actually work out <laughs> how that would work because i was determined i would have sections from the octopus's point of view but working out how that actually how that would actually play out on the page was really hard uh it's i, I think I, I think i got it done i think i, I actually uh, made a success of it but it was probably the most difficult thing i'd written to that point so do you very much sort of start with no outline in mind and you just sort of throw things into the story world and then extrapolate from there or do you sort of plan out the story before you go i guess what i'm asking is like are you more of a an outliner or a discovery writer yeah i mean it is it is a continuum between um yes. and plan um i am very much on the on the on the on the not plot and plan those are the same things um i'm very <laughs> much on the on the um on the planning end of of that line though i i the idea of just kind of launching yourself into the void and hope, hoping your imagination will catch you <laughs> terrifies me um, and so I, I, I plan out very rigorously and usually when I go, when I have problems with a book, it's because I have not planned rigorously enough. Um, the upside of this is I think it accounts to a certain, to a certain extent for my writing output in that because I work things out to a fair level of fine detail, I get all of my things like foreshadowing and, and thematic kind of elements in as the book goes down and then my final my first draft and my submission draft tend to be fairly similar the downside is when i do go off the rails i am not particularly well prepared to fix it because i'm not used to thinking in my feet in those sort of circumstances <laughs> i have to i have to just stop go back i'm the same way exactly but i have to there are points where i just have i, I can see it going off the rails and i have to just stop <laughs> yeah yeah and then re-outline Replan. That sounds so much smarter than what I do. <laughs> I was going to say the right way, Michael. We just barrel on through and hope it all makes yeah, sense. Did, in the end. Go yeah. off the rails and then come back later and think, oh, but how am I going to fix that? Sometimes that'll take me a week to of no real writing to to rethink everything. Yeah, might. What? But what that does is it saves me. Um, I rarely throw things away. Um, I rarely write something that I don't use at least um, in a pretty significant por uh, um, portion of uh, because because I go that way. But again, though, still I'm incredibly slow. I am just a really slow writer, and I'm going to save yeah. these questions for Adrian to our our inquisition in the last episode. Yeah. <laughs> um. Maybe one last question before we start wrapping up this, this animals discussion. Adrian, do you see people making any, or do you think there are any particular mistakes or, or misconceptions that writers make when they are approaching using animals and, and creatures in their books? Are there any things that you having studied, and, and Rob, you can weigh in on this as, you know, you guys are both zoologists. You can weigh in on this and um, 
yeah, just are there any things that people do that you having researched into this realize, oh, that's like not actually how it would go or things of that nature? I think there's only one very frequent uh, trope that's rolled out, rolled out that, that tends to annoy me. And that's mostly because of the way it tends to be misapplied in the real world more than in literature. I mean, the thing is, if you're writing, if you're writing about animals, animals have a, have a real sort of zoological component. They also have a very powerful symbolic component. And those things frequently don't match up because we see in animals what we want them to be, not necessarily how they are. And so you do get all sorts of misconceptions, but in, on, in, in the literary field, that's kind of fine, I think. The thing that tends to really get my goat is the alpha wolf idea, because okay. it's, it's very popular, and it, it's very popular as a real-world trope of people. So yes, well, you've got to be the biggest thing, and you, know, you beat everyone down, and then you're in charge, and then someone else comes along, and they're bigger, and that's how the wolves do it in the wild, and it's not how the wolves do it in the wild. It's complete. The research... Um, that's based on is all completely debunked. Um, the interactions were that people observed were completely misinterpreted. Wolves don't have alphas in that sense. They don't have that kind of mentality. They get along in, in effectively a far less sort of confrontational strength-based way than that. Um, and so it becomes purely a convenient human narrative um that people use to justify how they behave towards other human beings so i think that's the one that really annoys me but not necessarily because of the way it's applied in in books that's interesting rob do what about you a, do you oh yeah sorry Dirk. i was just gonna say do we have time i would love to hear what everybody's like examples of books they love that have animal characters great question that work that are done really well um so Adrian, what 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 kind of books do you love that inspired you to do this kind of thing? Uh, well, I, I was I was thinking about it on the, on the kind of run up to this um, podcast. I mean, the two that stand out, I think Jen Williams' uh, recent trilogy, uh, starting with the um, Ninth Rain, um, is is beautiful. I mean, they're not animals; they're kind of they're mythological creatures that have animal features uh, that serve as the kind of the, the mounts and companions of the of the leads. But I think that's the, the that's a very popular trope, fantasy trope, and I think Jen does it. Uh, it's one of the best examples of it I, I've, I've seen because they really are personalities in their own right. And the other one is is honestly um, the uh, Dark Materials, Philip Pullman, mm. with uh -huh. his. Uh, demons in that and again because it's a beautiful way of using animals because you use them to reflect the personality of the human characters with that kind of companionship um so it's it's, it's a really it's really um it adds a whole extra dimension to the characters in that particular world when you find all well, this this is their demon and this is how they you know it manifests and how they relate to it and not just the demons but the bears too yes absolutely the bears as well yeah yeah amazing what about you, Dirk? What are some of your favorite fictional animal representations? You know, and it, it's funny that, you know, as I was thinking of that and that question formulated in my mind, I was thinking about it's no wonder that I write the kind of stuff that I do because books that I absolutely love growing up were like Stuart Little um, based on mouse characters, um, Charlotte's Web. Um, you know, with Charlotte and the spider and the pig, just beautiful stuff. And one of my absolute favorites that I still will read on occasion today are uh, Bach's um, uh, Jonathan Livingston Seagull. 
which is just a beautiful book. If you haven't read it, it's really short. You can probably read it in about 45 minutes. Um, so, yeah, I go back to these older, these older things and early things that, that I read. And, you know, the ideas of the, of the kind of semi-sentient um, characters in Lord of the Rings, you know, the eagles, um, and even like the servants deer walking on their back legs, serving Tom Bombadil and, you know, stuff like that just absolutely fascinated me as a kid. What about you, Mike? Oh, sorry. Yeah, uh, I, I actually was, uh, I, I was going to say, uh, Jonathan Livingston Seagull just recently reread mm -hmm. that and, uh, yeah, I like, you know, it's I knew I liked you for animals, <laughs> um, you know, but kind of talking about people. Oh, watershed uh, down. Yeah, yeah, that too. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I've read either Watership Down or Jonathan Livingston Seagull. So I don't know what yeah. I was doing in my childhood, but I'll get onto those soon. Get on it, kid. <laughs> Rob, what You're about still you? In your childhood, you're fine, Jeff. <laughs> I don't yeah, know, this for me, I mean, I, I think I'd, I'd, I'd have to mention um, Robin Hobb. Um, not, I don't, I don't feel that her, her portrayal of sort of... Here we go. I've got one back here somewhere. This is a lovely illustrated edition. That yeah. looks beautiful. It does. Unfortunately, my lighting is absolutely terrible in here. But, you know. Rob's just holding up um, Assassin's Apprentice for people who are listening. I was, uh, like I don't think the portrayal of of the sort of like the the wolves and dogs uh, is the most accurate you might get. Um, yeah, there's a lot of sort of anthropomorphizing of uh, behaviour in it, but the sheer emotional connection that she manages to um, give between the people and their animal companions, especially Fitz and Night Eyes, is just I've I've never. I've never read an, uh, another book where they have that sort of level of emotional connection, um, which is you know strong enough to to bring you as a reader to tears on multiple occasions. That's awesome. Um, I would have to say for me personally, like this is a book that maybe doesn't get as much critical reception um, compared to the commercial reception that it got. But Aragon um, by Christopher Paolini, I, that was one of the books that really got me into fantasy. Um, as a young kid, I think I kind of read it at the perfect time. I was probably oh, like 13 or 14 or so when I was reading that. And um, just the kind of, because it's, it's a dragon rider book, the kind of relationship between Aragon and his dragon. Um, yeah, it was really cool. And it just was like sort of the first fantasy book I read that had dragons in it. So it was always going to be something pretty awesome and special, I suppose. Um, oh, but that brings up another question. Do dragons yeah. actually count as animals? Oh, Adrian? I think, they're on the, <laughs> I think there is a continuum. I mean, it, 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 like I say, in, in the same way that the moment you're giving an, an animal human characteristics of any kind, you're taking them out of that purely natural realm. Um, so I think you, you enter a kind of a, kind of a, a morphospace. space, I think, at that point, that dragons are certainly in. Okay. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Mm. All right. Well, I think um, that's probably a good note to close out this episode. Um, we're going to have Adrian on for some future episodes. I don't exactly know how they're going to be distributed, but 
If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, please be sure to do that if you enjoy seeing Adrian's face and slash or hearing Adrian's voice talk about animals and such. Um, we will have him back again. So thank you everybody for listening and watching. Um, and thank you, Adrian, for coming. We will see you all you. next time. Thank you for listening to Wizards, Warriors and Words. We hope you learned something useful. We love hearing from our listeners. Our email is wizardswarriorswords at gmail.com, which you can also find in the show notes. I personally read and respond to every email. So feel free to let us know what you thought about this episode. We'd also love to hear your questions. Send in a question via that email, wizardswarriorswords at gmail.com, and we might even answer it on the show. If you haven't already, please subscribe and write a review on Apple Podcasts. This helps more people discover the show. Wizards, Warriors, and Words is jointly hosted by Dirk Ashton, Michael R. Fletcher, Rob J. Hayes, and Jed Hearn. Our music comes from Michael R. Fletcher, and our artwork is by Felix Ortiz. Thank you again for listening. Now go and write extraordinary stories. We'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.